Hi there, and welcome to Crypto Clarified, Investing in the Truth, a podcast series where we come together to discuss the most captivating headlines and trends in the crypto space. My name is Benjamin Dean. I'm director at Wisdom Tree's Digital Assets team. A very special guest today, Lauren Gable, who's co-founder and CEO of Figment, one of the world's largest blockchain infrastructure and service providers, will be joining me. Everyone knows we love clarifying crypto here, and today we're going to do a deep dive on a topic that's become ultra-relevant lately, staking. We're going to talk about what it is, how it does, how does it work on the back end, and uh, what should be, people be thinking about, especially from the institutional investor space. As always, if you have any topics you'd like us to cover uh, in the future, hit us up at CryptoClarified at WisdomTree.com. You can find me at Benjamin Dean on Twitter. And if you're in the US, go to WisdomTreePrime.com. Sign up for the wait list. You won't be disappointed. Before we start the episode, before I ask Lorian to introduce himself, I have to do this disclaimer. This is the shout out to Sam and James in compliance. I need to state the following to clarify the views and opinions expressed in this podcast are those of Wisdom Tree and Figment and are subject to change. Anything we present in this podcast is not intended to be relied upon as a forecast, research, nor as investment or tax advice. The informations and opinions expressed in this podcast are not a recommendation, offer, or solicitation to buy or sell any securities, and reliance upon them is at the sole discretion of the listener. Please remember, past performance is no indication of future results. All right, housekeeping's done. On to the fun stuff. Lorian, thank you for joining us. It's a pleasure to see you again. Uh, it's good to be here. Um... We met, uh, I think, uh, the first time um, in, where was it, Barcelona at a co conference. Um, we kind of met, sort of met. We had an aborted date. I, uh, I found the wrong Ben, or the wrong Ben found me, um, and I had a long conversation thinking it was you um, until I realized that it wasn't you, and you were wondering where I was. So um, it, was, uh, it, was, it, was, it, was a, it was a fun conference, but I'm glad we're actually finally meeting again, um, and I uh, look forward to the dialogue today. So how long was it until you realized that you had the wrong Ben and like what tipped you off? About 10 minutes, I think. So, um, you know, just for, for the listeners, uh, we had, a, we were scheduled to meet at this conference and in, in crypto conference in Barcelona and, um, and we had never met before and, uh, I ran out of a panel and was looking for, for a band that I didn't know what he looked like. And another band came up to me with a name tag and said, Hey, Lorian, let's have a conversation. So I thought it was you and, um, nice guy, not too bright and, um, sat down and all of a sudden I couldn't figure out why we were talking about insurance, but I was unsure enough about <laughs> maybe was, maybe wisdom tree had something to do with insurance that I had missed in, in the, in the last year or something. So I kind of went along with it for a while until I looked at my telegram and you had said, where are you? And I was then felt like, um, the dumbest man in uh, in Barcelona at that point. So anyhow, there you go. Well, look, I'm going to have to raise this at the next meeting of the Council of Bens. I don't know if this Ben is a repeat offender and yes. uh, has been causing extra trouble out there. I think so. I'd have to recommend that Ben. It definitely wasting your time. Yeah, it, it should. It definitely should not create confidence as a CEO of this company that I don't know who I'm talking to at any given moment, but there you go. It is what it is. Hopefully it's not a scenario not at all, not at all. <laughs> setting it early. Well, hey, look, thanks for joining us today. It's going to be an excellent episode for the listeners going on a deep dive on, on staking. Usually when we start these sessions, uh, you always ask the guests to kind of introduce themselves, tell us a bit about how they got into the space. There's always an interesting story there. Uh, what brought you into the space when, what really kind of interests you to begin with? 
Yeah, uh, great question. So um, let's see. We, I have uh, two uh, co-founders. Um, both of them have deep engineering background. Uh, my CTO, uh, Matt, and uh, Chief Product Officer, Andrew. Um, both of them are eng- um, engineers. And this is our uh, fourth startup um, going back uh, 30 years. I pause because it's slightly painful saying the word 30 years. Um, but we, we've always been in internet infrastructure. Um, our first company was a very early ISP in the early nineties before there was even a browser. Yes, there was a time, um, when there was no browser. And then we had a data center company and a cloud security, email security company. And so this is just by way of saying that we've always found, um, uh, an early piece of internet, uh, trend or technology. And then, you know, um, because we come at it from the base layer or the infrastructure layer, see if we can go to business. Business. And then, you know, specifically with respect to Figment and crypto um, in particular, I think each one of the founders came at it from a slightly different perspective. You know, our CTO just has a deep interest in distributed computer systems and cryptography. Um, you know, um, Andrew uh, had some things around privacy and, you know, why can't you send a picture in your email of your new baby without being sold diapers for the next 10 years? Um, and who asked? has to sell me those things and then i you know just you know it's a little philosophical but you know in the in the early 90s when the internet sort of um the first version web 1.0 blew up um or became very popular um you know basic things like email um and you know blogs etc and you know newspapers going online there really was a i think a a vision of a disintermediated peer-to-peer communication network that didn't rely on a few large like telcos as gatekeepers etc and very expensive other forms of communication um and i think for the first 10 years you know um maybe to sometime in the 2000s that vision um of a better communication medium um for humans uh was on a was on a good track i'd say um and then somewhere I feel like in the mid 2000s, we really have had this centralization of our tech stack for lack of a bit with a whole bunch of now negative externalities that I think we all kind of feel. Um, I don't want to I don't want to go off too too far into left field, but I don't think anyone like feels that um, everything is quite right with the Internet, you know, regardless of how old you are, or what your political persuasion is or where you live, you kind of feel like there's something not quite right. You know, uh, Google's making billions of dollars off your data. You don't didn't really agree to it. I mean, technically you probably click something, but you actually don't know why that's the case. And you have these really anti-social algorithms on social media that, you know, you get angry after reading Twitter for five minutes. It's kind of weird. Um, you know, down the list, you have a pretty centralized financial stack. If you think about the power of a couple of people at the Fed who utter some bad adjectives and move trillions of dollars markets because I don't know. You tell me why it's kind of like the Pope saying something on Sunday, nothing against the Pope. I love the Pope. Um, and that, you know, it's really, it's really with old three-year-old data or three-month-old data. Like the whole thing is kind of just weird when you think about it. And I think we're starting to see more and more of those negative externalities for what was a whole bunch of positive benefits. So that's a long way of saying that I thought maybe this technology could be a counterbalance to some of these trends that I think that are really negatively affecting individuals and society because there's too much centralization in our financial um, and in our um, uh, technical stack, if you will, you know, public, private, et cetera. So we're not anarchists. We serve mostly institutional clients um, um, and large token holders. Uh, but I really do fundamentally believe that if there's going to be some hope of uh, having some more balance in how we interact with the internet, um, this is a technology that might do that in 
future. So it was a long way. So that was my intellectual interest. You know, you have to have something other than just wanting to make money as a reason for doing something. And I think that's how we all came to this space. That was a long, sorry, that was a long answer to your, your very short question. Um, but that's how we got into the space. And then um, when, we, when 2017, 2018, we, um, you know, we looked at a bunch of different areas. Um, one of them, you know, was like Bitcoin mining. And we we're like, ah, it's kind of boring. It's intellectually and uninteresting um and right around that time something called proof of stake which we'll, which we'll talk about was being considered as a alternative way to run blockchains and um she thought huh if this actually works we probably were pretty good at scaling it and so we'll, let's try this um and then sort of you know stay around the hoop and see what happens and um you know three or four years later i guess um you know any business that's succeeding is part luck and part timing um, and part skill and i think we had the right mix at that point Okay, I'll take a breath. So that was, a, that was my long answer to your short question. I'm sorry. No, you're quite all right. It's uh, anybody who lived through that period or anyone who knows their kind of technology history, you know, there were massive dreams in the 90s that, you know, this information would be freed. Uh, That's right. would be able to access the world's information from a device and would ultimately be hopefully kind of a liberating force, something that made people's lives better. Uh, right. It's kind of John Perry Barlow's Declaration of the Independence of Cyberspace. WikiLeaks and the cypherpunks, and yeah, as you say, something along a the way. A great man. We miss him. We we miss him. We miss him dearly. Yeah, we were, he was a. I met him a couple of times. He was a really forward, visionary thinker. So yeah, and uh, yeah, yeah. mourn his loss. So I, I I'm often around clients, and I have to explain this history to them. They don't know Phil Zimmerman and PGP in the nineties and things yeah. like that. But the other one is like Tim Wu, a professor right. at. Uh, Columbia University, he wrote a book called The Master Switch, which is all about kind of how new technologies oh, emerge yeah. and are usually quite distributed, right? And then over time, as the industry grows, matures, it's either co-opted by the incumbents or it decentralizes due to kind of a few uh, winner-take-all dynamics. And we've totally seen that play out the last 20 years. And I mean, personally, right. I, I was interested right. in privacy online and then cybersecurity, right? How can we rely on this technology if it's spying on us? Yeah. And then how can we rely on it if like all our That's data right. can be pinched, stolen, corrupted? Uh, obviously, when Bitcoin came along and then we saw other yeah. networks emerge alongside it, that promise looked like it might come alive again, right? I think that's why a lot of folks work in this space. Right. So much time and effort trying to build things. That, yeah, and it's, yeah. You know. and I think it's um, more, it's even more pernicious than that, and that, uh, you know, these large sort of gatekeepers effectively, which there are four or five of them now, have almost lost control themselves of what they've created, especially around the algorithm front that no one really knows um, why or what they're actually doing. And if, if it's the right thing for individuals um, and society as a whole. Um, and so kind of in the, in the, in the, uh, in the name of selling you more diapers um, or something, uh, we've really, I think done a disservice to, to the possibility of this technology or the internet in general. So. Uh, it's rather unfortunate. So, so yeah, I hope, uh, again, you know, people sometimes pose the, the frame that, oh, well, decentralized, everything can't be decentralized. That's kind of chaos. And I, I think I probably agree with that statement, but it's not a, it's not really a binary. It's not as, you know, it's not, we're, we're way too, we're way too much on the centralized end of that spectrum. And so maybe we need to move a little bit toward um, some decentralization without going into full anarchy. Yeah. So you've mentioned Figment and your co-founders and their backgrounds. Could you give us, uh, at least the listeners, just kind of a very quick synopsis of what Figment is and what precisely you do? Because you're very specialized in something that's becoming more and more kind of prevalent or yeah. important these days. All right. 
right. Before I sort of answer that directly, I have to do some um, uh, some definitional work. Uh, we do something called staking, and staking, unfortunately, is poorly defined. Despite um, our best effort, our best efforts over the last few years to actually define what it is, staking, and this is bad from a regulatory perspective. And then um, generally, customers aren't exactly sure what what um, we're talking about all the time. So, staking can mean a lot of things um, within. Um, uh, the digital asset world. And so it can be like liquidity farming. It can be your yield farming, liquidity provision. It can even be, um, centralized lending is sometimes referred to, um, as staking, uh, within the industry. Well, what I'm talking about here is protocol staking very specifically. And, and that's a very different from all those other things that I just talked about. And so to take a step back, you know, there's really two ways right now of, you can think of it as an operating system for blockchains. So you have something called proof of work, um, which powers Bitcoin. Um, this is not a anything I'm talking about isn't a negative statement about Bitcoin or proof of work. Um, they're just two alternatives to accomplish the same goals, which is how you organize and run a decentralized protocol. So Bitcoin um, famously runs on proof of work. It's very secure. It's never been hacked. Um, you have these big data centers that consume a lot of electricity um, and computing power. Um, and essentially, you have these miners um, who compete to maintain and produce the and process transactions um, via computing power and electricity. Some people have ESG concerns about that. Um, I think they're personally a little bit overblown, but that that, that narrative is out there. Um, and about four or five years ago, people were trying to figure out if there's another way to secure a blockchain and, and send a bunch of um, disparate actors to maintain the ledger and process transactions and something that something was called proof of stake, funny names. Um, they're also called like, instead of an operating system, consensus mechanisms. That's what they are. It's a mechanism for getting consensus about a ledger. Um, so the name actually kind of makes sense, even if it sounds a little bit weird. And so proof of stake um, was considered as uh, perhaps a viable alternative. And if you've heard about the merge uh, with Ethereum, um, Ethereum has just essentially switched. The community has switched from proof of work to proof of stake. Um, there was a big upgrade that happened to the final, um, not the final upgrade, but um, uh, it was called the merge and it happened, you know, um, you know, in the last 60 days. And it was kind of a big deal for, you know, us particularly um, because um, really expands our market. You know, anyone who holds Ethereum is now a potential customer um, and for the, the space in general. So it's, it's a pretty significant um, event. So um, that's what proof of stake and proof of work is. Um, I think if you need to know one thing about them um, is that, you know, in proof of work, you have these miners who maintain the, the ledger and process transactions for Bitcoin. And then you have um, the token holder and the two really in general, their, um, their interest should be aligned, but not always. Um, and they really don't have anything to do with each other. You know, they're two very separate um, constituencies with proof of stake. It essentially brings um, the token holders and the miners together into one function. So if you have 32 ETH, um, you can spin up a node on Ethereum and then participate in maintaining the ledger and processing um, Ethereum transactions and sharing in you know, the rewards generated from that activity and the value created. So it really brings those two um, uh, audiences or participants in a, in a decentralized protocol together, um, which I think is pretty cool. Um, I don't know if it's the ultimate realization of Satoshi's vision, but I've said it before, but it kind of, you know, now you have, you know, as a token holder, you can choose to actually run the protocol. It's kind of as if like credit card holders, you know, um, instead of the banks doing it, the processing transactions or a centralized, each credit card holder could decide to put up a little value and process other credit card transactions. So um, 
not the best analogy in the world, but I, I think it works here. So that's really the difference between proof of work and proof of stake. Um, it also uh, perhaps is more scalable, um, uses less energy. Um, so, you know, if ESG is a, is a concern, um, it has some benefits in that regard. So that's proof of work and proof of stake. Um, and we basically, Figment supplies, um, if you're a large token holder and a proof of stake token as an institution or a large in, uh, as an individual, you hold Solana or Ethereum or um, Cosmos um, or Avalanche, then you have a chance to run these nodes um, and you could do it yourself or for a whole various set of reasons, you probably want to outsource it to us. Um, and we're basically the, the world's um, leader provider, leading provider in that area across 60 different proof of stake protocols. Most people don't realize just on the back end kind of what's technically required. And then also if you specialize in, in that staking back end, like performance increases uh, and avoidance of penalties. I also find that a lot of people, as I've had to explain, proof right. of stake get confused. They get confused with some of the things you just talked about, in particular lending. I think that's perhaps because I speak to a lot of institutional investors who are used to yeah. the idea of securities lending. And they're like, oh, so it's like securities lending. And right. it's like, no, 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 no. It's not like that at all, actually. Uh, so being very clear about what it is right. isn't is yeah. important. And, and and it's and it also sounds like it's also staking is a non-custodial behavior, which is kind of weird coming from a traditional finance perspective. So when you stake, um, it sounds like you're giving us control of your assets, i.e. your private keys. Um, but those private key, you, you don't actually do the other words for state you're actually nominating, delegating, electing. And when you get into those words, what essentially um, it means is you're giving us the right to run that physical um, computer infrastructure on your behalf. So wherever your assets are, whether they're self-custody or you you know hold them with a qualified custodian, when you stake, you don't give us or, you know, uh, control or the act of staking doesn't give anyone else control of those assets. And it doesn't even give them control of those reward flows that you receive. Um, that happens on chain also. So um, that matters for a whole host of reasons. One, like, you know, basically from a, you know, there's been a bunch of DeFi type activities that haven't turned out so well in the past year. Um, staking uh, or protocol staking is not one of them um, for that reason. In other words, you always have control of your assets. Um, so, um, you know, you have protocol level risk, but you, you have that if you own, you own the token anyhow. So, um, yeah, so that's, a, that's another difference that it's also a non-custodial um, transfer of those assets. You're basically sort of assigning us the right to run certain computers on your behalf to oversimplify a lot. It reminds me a little bit of a concept that you might be familiar with. In Berlin, it became very popular about 10 years ago, this idea of liquid democracy which is essentially where you delegate your vote to different people who are experts in certain topics. And in that way, you kind of marshal delegated voting power behind people who are best equipped to go and make decisions on your behalf. In this case, you're allocating voting power from your cryptocurrency holdings to validators that you think are going to run the network honestly and efficiently, right? And in that way, over time, you'd hope that the, the right. best validator nodes end up with the largest stake. You end up with the largest reward for doing an honest and efficient job uh, and as a consequence right. the network's kept safe that's right yeah it's uh, the problem is not many right. people know what no, that, that's a great analogy so, i like that right right down a bit, <laughs> maybe okay. just say representatives and right that's okay so, yeah i like the, that analogy i might, a few I might things borrow that get confused about though and like the one that they ask me is like so where does the staking reward come from 
So you've been selected, your node's been selected to validate right. the net with the, the new transactions. It does it correctly. And then you're rewarded with new cryptocurrency. And they say, so where does it come from? Uh, does it come from the ether, right. pun intended? And, so that, and it does a little bit, that's right? That's right. Um, um, yeah, sort of, sort of. It is sort of magic internet money. Um, but, you know, the actual amount that um, you receive is really a function of two, um, two inputs. So one is the protocol pays a rate to maintain the ledger. Um, this is sometimes referred to as inflation internally. It's a bit of a misnomer um, or slightly confusing, but essentially there's a set of built-in economics which incent people to lock up their tokens to stake them um, and essentially add computing resources um, and provide security to the protocol. Um, in return for you know the next block, they essentially earn a fee for that. And that's built in. It's in the protocol. You can build a financial models around it to determine what it is be. And that number, generally speaking, goes up and down depending on what the rate of staking on the protocol is. So if there's 10% of the outstanding tokens are staked, that number will generally be very high. Well, you know, like, I don't know, 10 to 20%. If 70 or 80% of the protocol is staked, um, then that number might be, again, this is really network or blockchain by blockchain. So don't hold me to these numbers, but, you know, be much lower, maybe four or five or six percent. So really, there's a set of internal mechanisms built into the code, um, which incent people to stake those assets in return for um, additional tokens going forward. That rate fluctuates based on the amount that's staked. The other input is uh, essentially gas fees, which are transaction fees, which are usage. So um, if the protocol is being used, Broadly speaking, those fees will be higher and you'll earn more. Um, if no one's using the protocol, then they'll be lower, lower and um, the people who are staking will, will effectively earn less. So those are really the two things to determine. And, and the rates for this are all baked into the protocol and you can build financial models around it um, with a host of assumptions. And we do that, in fact, on behalf of our customers, et cetera. So um, I hope that's clear as mud. Um, but that's basically why you earn token rewards and what you have to do to earn those and what affects that rate. Great. That's excellent clarification. Totally on brand for Crypto Clarified. Um, I'm sure people appreciate a concise uh, <laughs> hopefully, explanation. Hopefully we've clarified it. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> There's another piece here that I find confuses people as well. And it's actually one of the reasons you might consider having a specialist try and manage this for you. Um, and that's slashing. So staking sounds like something you do to vampires, right? And then slashing sounds like something out of a Halloween yep. movie. Yeah, I mean, it's, Halloween's coming up, so it's, it's kind of you know seasonal here. But slashing is something that I see well, freaks people. What, out. Whatever it, whatever it is, it's not good. Yeah, right. Like I don't want that. Now, how much of like how right. likely is that? Under what circumstances can that happen? And should people be freaking out about slashing or other kinds of penalties that can be inflicted upon them if the validator node doesn't do its job? Right. So there are two things um, that can go wrong if we don't do uh, essentially our job on your behalf, if you stake to us. Um, one of them is missed rewards. Um, and essentially that is like an effectively a, a lower rate of return if our servers are offline to, to oversimplify a little bit, but basically that's it. So that kind of correlates to uptime, broadly speaking. Um, and so, you know, when when choosing um, a provider, you really want to look at their effective um, uptime compared to the rest of the network um, and how, you know, we provide a bunch of data around that to our benefit because we're generally um, 
the best operator on a protocol. So, you know, we try to provide that data so customers can compare, um, you know, us across the protocol and see that effectively their reward reward rate will be higher because, you know, we do we do a really good job in that respect. The other thing is this thing called slashing. Um, and uh, it's kind of as bad as it sounds. Um, and effectively, depending on just as an aside, I use protocol network and blockchain interchangeably. I mean the same thing when I when I say those three things. Um, so um, some protocols have something called slashing. Um, and effectively, that's the equivalent of a double spend. I tried to spend a digital asset twice. In this case, it's called double signing um, or trying to like, it looks like you're trying to fork the network, which is very bad. The blockchain doesn't like that. So sometimes in some protocols, you can have a slashing that would cost one to five percent of the principal, which is obviously very bad. And so you want to be um, very careful in selecting your provider based around, um, you know, insurance, SLAs around that and probably most importantly, track record. So we've never been slashed. Um, I think I now need to go knock, find some wood, knock on some wood um, now that I've said it. Um, so, you know, we have a, um, a perfect operating record across six protocols in that respect. And so um, that's very important. But those are the, the risks. So there's never a risk of like 50 or 100 percent of loss. So I suggest, sort of, again, it's not like your counterparty in a lending transaction defaulted, et cetera. And now you're now you're risking 100 percent. It is usually one to five percent. Not good. Um, but also, you know, it, within like a whole host of risky activities you can do with your assets it's pretty low down on that risk risk curve if the worst thing happens but yeah that's uh that's what slashing is cool so slashing is one of like these characteristics of different networks that kind of differentiate them i can see why some folks who don't follow the stuff as deeply as you or i do be a bit daunted by it because they you've, you've mentioned a couple of times actually already you know what i'm saying here doesn't apply to all networks so could we just quickly talk about, yeah, before we move the topic right. to something less technical, like what are the differences between the networks, broadly speaking? And uh, I mean, how many chains do you say that you folks are operating on? Like you, you must have a pretty broad panorama of all these. Uh, these we we support, uh, we, yeah, we, yeah, we support over 60. Um, and that number is not like super relevant, I think, other than to say that um, we have a very scalable infrastructure at this point. So we can add, you know, blockchains to production, at, you know, two or three a month if required on behalf of our institutional clients. So it just really speaks to the, the scalability of our platform. Um, I would say that, you know, most of uh, institutional clients or the people, you know, probably listening to this podcast really hold like maybe five might hold five different proof of stake assets not all of them but one of those five um and that's really uh you know usually an institution starts with bitcoin and then the next thing is ethereum and then perhaps there'll be a holder of solana or, or avalanche or polka dot and then there's a fairly long tail which gets into more early stage investors or developers or participants so there's a long tail of newer protocols um that are you know each has their own um, function or niche or use case um and so that long tail you know we have you know a lot of vc clients um and so they're obviously early investors in these protocols so that's why we support so many um and and we can because um we, we build this platform but yeah generally you know most sort of at least large institutional investors it's 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 one of or two of like five different of those assets which i just mentioned yeah absolutely i mean the ones who are coming to me now are, they're asking about ethereum because they've read about it in the paper over the last couple of weeks yep and uh, that's you're right. right. Like most of them are pretty early that's on right. the journey, right? Um, fair enough. 
So um, uh, that is still change. They're they're here. They're here. But yeah, that's right. Bit by bit, bit by bit. Some of them are shocked to find out there's more than Bitcoin. So you know there really is variance in terms of where they are on the journey. Uh, hey, it's you know this is what happens with new technology. It takes time to kind of permeate throughout society. Speaking about permeating across society, very quickly when technologies kind of reach critical mass and scale, a certain group of people start to become very interested in it. And uh, those people are in government. They are regulators, legislators, other kinds of kind of parties associated with uh, the technology in question. Um, what's your view or from where you sit? What are you seeing kind of in terms of discussions yep. amongst those parties, it's always something that people ask me in client meetings, but it's also something where I, I, from where I sit, at least I see a lot of movement and I'm not quite sure like which direction it's going in for, for staking. Right. So um, I'll answer this question primarily from a, a North American or American viewpoint, although I think it applies to many Western ju jurisdictions. Um, I'll first say that, you know, very, very quickly off the top, I'm on, I'll answer your question specifically, specifically eventually. Um, I, you know, we we spend a lot of time with our clients. Um, uh, our regulatory group, um, you know, is led by um, actually uh, Jenny Levine, who's maybe the, the foremost expert um, in this area around staking and regulation and crypto assets. And so we do spend a lot of time with our clients and help them get comfortable with that. And we don't provide legal advice and all that stuff, but we do. It is a part of our value proposition. So I'll just throw that in there. If you do have questions, um, um, I think we could be helpful, at least pointing in the right direction in that regard. If you're if you're thinking about staking or holding these assets, so um, so big picture, um, I think we are limping our way to a less than perfect regulatory framework that will be usable and by most individuals and institutions in three to five years. Um, you know, I think you know, very high level, it's it's too late to ban these assets, or it's, they're not going to be banned at least in the West. Um, in the U.S., uh, the cat's out of the bag, so to speak. Um, now, it would be great if our um, fearless leaders in government actually had a theory of the case, saw this as a competitive technology, um, set up you know um, sandboxes for experimentation while still protecting consumers, and really had a theory of the case rather than what I think is very often you'll have um, you know someone who gets an idea that either crypto asset is bad or the space is bad or good. And then you'll have, you know, one piece of legislation or a, a regulator um, talking off the cuff that this is bad and this is good. Like there's very little like cohesive view, I think, in most governments about um, the promise of this technology, which is really unfortunate. You know, I, fair to say our governance is probably broken in that respect at a, at a society level. Um, but I think we'll get there. You know, I don't know. What's the, what's the Winston Churchill saying? Um, the Americans will do the right thing after they've tried everything else. So I think we'll probably get there. Um, it'll be imperfect. It would be great if, um, again, we had some leadership in, in this area because I think it really is an important technology for you know our competitiveness, competitiveness and for the beneficial uh, for the benefit of society, etc. Um, but we'll we'll get there. So I think that that's kind of the long term view of of, of regulation. Um, it it really would be. I'll, I'll be careful what I say. Um, it, it really would be good if um, the regulators actually did their job and made rules rather than going on TikTok or whatever um, um, and talking, you know, if they spent less time giving interviews um, on financial networks and, and tweeting and actually did their job and made rules that people would work with, they should do that. Um, there's been a lot of 
I think enforcement by, or, you know, regulation by enforcement, which is just not your job. You know, you're hired and employed by the citizens to effectively regulate an industry and allow it to grow. And you're not doing that. So um, eventually you lose your job if you do it. So I really think that regulators have an obligation to educate themselves. That's why they exist, um, protect consumers um, and actually write some rules that are that are workable. Um, there's an act of Congress in the U.S. There's lots of court cases. There's a whole um, administrative uh, rule book that they should be following. Um, and, you know, in many cases, they're not actually doing their jobs. So um, eventually they will. Um, because they'll be out of a job if they don't, um, and we'll get there. But that's kind of where I think the current state is. Now, with, with, with respect to staking in particular, again, um, uh, you know, we don't really sell to consumers. We're not offering like some weird high yield rate or something like that. Um, there hasn't been any significant, um, uh, you know, I guess, blow ups or anything where something has failed uh, on the staking side. It is very different from, again, a host of those other activities, which we talked about, some of which didn't turn out so well, like the centralized or like the centralized lending um, activities. So staking itself is, you know, um, I would say a little bit below the, you know, it's not number one on any regulators list because there hasn't been any consumer harm. Um, it continues to be an activity, which is, again, there's no, you know, there's no investment of money. When you stake, you're not giving up your private keys anywhere. Um, so I just think from, you know, the the risk of that activity is, of this activity is really low. Um, it doesn't really have the nature of like a security because you're not really investing money. You're, you hold onto your keys. Um, you have the asset anyhow. Now, whether the specific token is a security or not, I think that's an open question, you know, Ethereum and Bitcoin or not, or at least have been said to be not. Um, and, you know, that's that's a separate question but the act of staking itself is not a security on like just the basic sort of when you look at the tests of what it are so what it is so that's kind of where we're at um that's from a broad view to specific around staking so i appreciate that i read over the policy documents when they come out um and i notice that staking's never mentioned and in a way that's probably a good thing uh it's not so much a question of technology right. neutrality but like as you're saying, like the, the set of issues that it faces is completely different, the, the risk profiles and so on and so forth. It's probably a good thing that it's not mentioned or called out explicitly because that might just lead to kind of unnecessary complexity. At the same time, I wonder if you sat down with some of these folks yep. and asked them if they know what staking is, how many would actually know that it exists and it's a thing. Uh, I, I don't have an answer to that. And I think they think it was something else. That's right. And I think they think it was something <laughs> else. You know, it was centralized lending or DeFi or something like that. So uh, I, I think that's pretty, you know, we do spend a lot of time uh, on the education front. Um, I hope that we see more of those policy papers and, you know, I'd like to actually see them taking the time to understand, um, you know, the, what participation in a protocol looks like and it's called staking um, and how it's different from other things and why it's uh, risky or not risky. So anyways, I think we'll get there again. Um, it's just going to take a little, a little more work. Yeah, as long as they're not confusing it with lending to start with, because then, you know, with the, the events of this year with Three Arrows Capital and whatnot, that's definitely yes. not staking. And to conflate the two would be to, to, to kind of tar it with a brush that's just not really, yep. it's just not correct, frankly. Yeah. Um, I haven't seen that, but it would be, you know, a problem I, if I think it that's right. were to happen. I don't think so. Yeah, just to put a fine point on it, um, you know, why it's different from lending is, um, you know, lending, you obviously have counterparty risk. Um, you've given up 
lend those assets and give them control of their private keys in the case of a digital asset. Um, you know, if meteors were to hit our data centers or Figment were to disappear, you would just re-delegate your assets. So there would be no loss of assets. So that's like fundamentally different from the activity of actually lending. So that's just a, to like put a very fine point on it. All right, got it. So uh, we're coming a little bit up on time. We can close out the show with something maybe a bit broader than just talking about staking. Um, I'm kind of interested to know from where you're sitting and, and the work you do and the people you spend time around, like if uh, listeners like should cast their eye anywhere in particular in, in the coming months, are there any kind of topics that have your interest or you think that are uh, places where we might see some action or some changes uh, in the near future? Yeah, so um, you know, we we launched the company in a you know two year crypto winter in twenty eighteen, twenty nineteen, part of twenty twenty actually, um, where um really, you know, there was a quote depression unquote in digital asset prices. Um and it in hindsight it was actually a great time to launch a company because we could figure out what we're doing and why we're doing it and actually build something. Um and you know, we're clearly in a we're clearly again in, um, you know, whatever you want to call it, a crypto winter, et cetera. Um, but uh, what we've seen in general, you know, we, we tend to, you know, we have some other services of which we can see like developer activity and we really haven't seen any slowdown in, we've seen a slowdown in specul speculative activity, obviously. We haven't really seen a slowdown in developers joining these ecosystems like, um, you know, through we, we see hundreds of developers in the case of Figment using a set of our services, which help them build things on the Internet um, come in every day. And that really hasn't slowed down that much as far as far as I can tell. So I think, you know, um, we've started to see some really useful applications for blockchain. Uh, maybe not what anyone anticipated, you know, maybe around stable coins or um, culturally around art and NFTs um, really take hold. And, and continue to, to continue to grow. And I think that in this in this market, um, you know, we have internally, we just talk about keep shipping, don't look at prices, keep building, um, keep building products that customers want. Um, so we'll continue to do that. Um, and I think we're going to just, you know, I, I don't know exactly what they are. I kind of have some inclination around um, some privacy communication protocols, um, uh, VPN services, communication services, which I think are great for um, decentralized protocols. But I think you're going to start seeing a lot of really innovative applications over the in this market. In fact, um, maybe because you have less the kind of the speculative um, mania, I guess, of, of last year, and developers can kind of build. Um, help sometimes to have calm waters. Um, certainly we find the case that we can really focus on our products and our customers in this environment and not be looking at, you know, number go up by a dramatic amount every day. So anyways, I, I don't know if I specifically answered your question, but I think we're going to continue to see um, use cases that people didn't really expect or um, um, weren't forecasted three or four years ago like we did in, you know, in the last couple of years. Um, and I'm pretty optimistic about that. Yeah, I definitely noticed the same thing when I go out to the crypto conferences. I'm around the devs. I've seen it since April, and then you no, know, I come back and explain it to folks when they ask for a market update. They say, "Well, the market's down fifty percent or something." I say, "Yeah, well, so are some equities." <laughs> but then I say to them, "If you go out and meet the people who are actually building the technology and building companies on the technology, they haven't slowed down. The venture capital hasn't really slowed down. But more importantly, right. those folks are still out building it." It reminds me of twenty eighteen when I used to go out and meet what now are called the DeFi devs when they were building their V1s of things like Uniswap and Aave. And, uh, you know, they just love building stuff. They would do it whether they're making money in it or not. Yep. They're not in it for the money. 
they're in it because for the reasons you mentioned earlier on, they've got this vision of a more decentralized web instead of internet infrastructure, but also because there's it's a certain personality, right? Like some people just like to build things and solve problems. That's right. And uh, you couldn't That's stop right. them if you wanted. Absolutely. Uh, so we're seeing a I lot agree. of incumbent organizations yeah. now hiring heads of digital assets. They've realized this technology is potentially very disruptive to their business models. Uh, they're not sitting there and saying like, that'll never work. It's too expensive. Uh, nobody uses it. Um, they're now saying, what are we going to do in response to it? Going back to what we were thinking about at the top, like this idea that the internet was meant to be this decentralized force for information access and interaction, and then it was consolidated into big tech. Do you think now, like we're maybe at the moment where we risk actually that repeat of history, essentially, as the incumbents now start to try and come in and co-opt the technology? Yeah, so great question. Um, I think, you know, that, I don't know if that's an iron iron law of technology, maybe it is, but it. I have to say it's very hard for incumbents to make that transition and usually don't. So, um, you know, very, you know, so, you know I, I guess, you know, IBM and Microsoft still exist, um, but they're not dominant in the way that people thought they were or were concerned about at one point in time. Right. Um, so I think that, you know, institutions, you know, whatever they try to do and they'll try to, you know, sort of fight the flank. I, I don't think it, I don't think it really matters. Like, I just think that the nature of the technology will determine that. Um, not whether institutions are interested or want to participate in the space in a certain way. Like, I think if, you know, Twitter or Google are going to be disintermediated, they're going to be disintermediated. And it doesn't matter if they have, like, a digital asset person. <laughs> it, 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 I mean, they'll all try, but it, it doesn't really make a difference. So um, I think that that's, um, that's pretty consistently been the history of new technologies. So um, there's a whole set of, you know, crossing, you know, there's a whole set of incentives about the innovator's dilemma and all that all that good stuff. So I think, I think that exists here also. Yeah. Dust off Clayton Christensen's The Innovator's Dilemma, and you could read that. You also just have to look around. I mean, with all Meta's money, they couldn't get Diem off the ground. Uh, Microsoft has had its own enterprise blockchain platform that went nowhere. IBM has its internet, its enterprise blockchain thing. It went nowhere. Uh, so we've already got pretty yep. evident use cases or examples, case studies, I mean. Uh, in how it's difficult for the elephants right. to learn to dance again. Uh, maybe that does give us a little hope. Is yeah. there anything that you Absolutely. personally worries you looking forward or that you think folks have got to be a bit careful of if we're actually going to realize this uh, aspirational vision for how this new technology could like, improve people's lives, basically? Um, well, yeah. Um, you know, I'm just, uh, as, a, as a founder, I'm sort of paranoid by by design and, you know, worry every day that something is um, going to break or not go, or, you know, this is it's part of the job description, unfortunately, is, you know, everything's going to fall apart at any given moment. Um, so uh, other than that, um, I try to remain uh, stoic in that regard. And, um, and generally, you know, I, again, because I see people joining the ecosystems and continuing to build, I'm, you know, on a, on a big picture, not in any given hour, but on a big picture, I'm pretty optimistic um, and continue to be very optimistic. And, you know, I've sort of actually never felt, you know, of our company in particular and our customers have been, actually have haven't felt this optimistic um, since we started the company basically before we had any customers. So um, there's nothing really that worries me, you know, a little bit about the, reg the regulatory front. And I you know I really would like us to, uh, 
uh, continue to get this out of the way um, so that builders can build and we can embrace this new technology. But in general, I feel pretty good about where we're at. Nice. Good. Well, we don't want it to like age you horribly unnecessarily, uh, even if it is part of the job description. Uh, some things are and aren't worth it, right? Yes, uh, any I final remarks part. before this, we, uh, this, 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 we call it a day? No, I really, I, I really enjoyed the conversation. I think um, we actually um, did uh, more than your, your average podcast and talked about some really interesting big picture topics around technology and society, which I, which I really enjoyed and uh, was, uh, was a great conversation. Yeah, well, you'll have to come back sometime if you want to continue to nerd out with me on like the economic and political consequences of new technology. Aside from clarifying crypto, which I love. I've had the master switch. Yeah, that's right. I've had the master switch on my bookshelf for a while. And um, now uh, now I'm going to make me get out and actually read it. So it's a good recommendation. Yeah, yeah. Well, if you're flying around, then then that's a great thing. If you've got a, a flight across the Atlantic coming up there you go that's that's your reading material uh if, if you don't read the whole book it'll at least put you to sleep Done. uh lauren where can people find you on the interwebs you're on twitter uh i am uh at, at lorian tree um l-o-r-i-e-n-t-r-e-e which is my middle name um hippie parents obviously um and then obviously at uh at bigman.io you can you can find um you can find myself and uh the rest of this company that wants to help you state your assets Nice one. All right. Well, thank you, Lorraine. It's been a pleasure to speak with you. With that, we're out of time, unfortunately. I hope everyone found today's podcast useful and informative. As a reminder, if you'd like us to cover any specific topics in a future episode or to find out more information, please email the slow snail mail way, crypto clarified at windowwisdomtree.com. You can find me at Benjamin Dean on Twitter. And uh, for those in the US, go to wisdomtree.com, wisdomtreeprime.com, P-R-I-M-E wisdomtreeprime.com sign up for the waitlist you won't be disappointed that's it for another session everyone have an excellent day Lorian see you soon enough thank you